Good morning, Riff. What's up, everyone? My name is Hezekiah Trevino, and I'm one of the pastoral residents here at Riv. Um, excited that you are here with us. Um, if you've been following along the past couple of weeks, or if you're new, uh, we've been in a series here called The Sticky Gospel, where we're walking through the book of Mark. And the reason why we're calling it The Sticky Gospel is because we see that Mark throws together a lot of random stories in not chronological order. And uh, sometimes when you're reading the book of Mark, it can seem like you're reading sticky notes, like, like that's how he wrote it. Um, and uh, it may be a lot, but if you got your Bibles with you or your phones, or if you don't, we got it on the screen for you. Don't feel bad. Uh, but we're going to read Mark 11 through 30. Uh, it's, it's a lot, but I, wanted, I want everybody to get the whole story. So it says, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, uh, demanding of, a, uh, of him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, why does this generation demand a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and went on the other side. The disciples had forgotten to take bread and had only one loaf with them in the boat. Then he gave them strict orders, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They were discussing among themselves and they, uh, that they did not have bread. Aware of this, he said to them, why are you discussing the fact you have no bread? Don't you understand or comprehend? Do you have hardened hearts? Do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets uh, full of leftovers did you collect? Twelve, they told him. When I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you collect? Seven, they said. And he said to them, don't you understand yet? They came to Bethsaida. Uh, they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and brought him out of the village, spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him. He asked him, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking. Again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes. The man looked intently and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Then he sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Last section. Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. So the reason I wanted to read all these verses together is that although there's a, a, a few different stories here, obviously, um, in just these 19 verses, we will start to see that they're all tied together somehow with, with a main theme, which is something that Mark does often. Um, although there are different things we can take from these passages, different, you know, I've heard so many different sermons people preached on just these verses and each separate story alone. One main thing we can see throughout is that the Pharisees, the disciples, and even this blind man all had a different perception of Jesus uh, his character, 
in his overall mission while he was here on earth. All of them had a different idea of who Jesus was to them. Now, most of us, you know, we can look at these stories and have the privilege to know the full story, right, of Jesus. Most of, most of us know how the story ends. So it's easy for us to judge and think, how did they not know these things, right? Like, uh, why are they so clueless? But if I'm being honest, you know, understanding Jesus, his intentions, and his values is something that we still argue about today uh, among Christians in the church. And even with us knowing the full story, knowing how he would die and rise again, we can still miss who Jesus was and is. I mean, even after Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, we still see him and his disciples struggling to comprehend who Jesus really was. And they were right there with him. And what I find interesting is that in, in just these 19 verses alone, Jesus asked 12 different questions. Uh, and I want to walk through these 12 different questions uh, that he asked because I believe it was intentional on the author's part to put so many questions together. And we see that Jesus not only asked some rhetorical questions, but he answers some questions that solicit a response. Uh, so let's dive in. Mark 11. Uh, it, it starts off with Jesus' encounter with the Pharisees. The Pharisees demanded a sign to test him. By this point in, in time, the Pharisees are already plotting to kill Jesus, and Jesus knows this, as we learned from the previous weeks. Some theologians think that this sign uh, that the Pharisees are asking for would, would be more of a, like apocalyptic sign, like a, a, a sign from heaven, you know, if you will. Uh, because it's clear that the Pharisees would have seen Jesus perform multiple miracles at this point. I mean, we, we've read through Mark a little bit. So they aren't necessarily asking for a, a miracle, for, you know, a, a miracle of Jesus to, like, heal somebody or, you know, because he's already done multiple miracles at this point. But they're most likely looking for a sign uh, that is similar to uh, Jesus showing his power. They want him to exercise his power. For example, you know, like calling down a legion of angels, you know, to show how powerful he is. Like, is he really from God? The word test here is actually the same word uh, uh, that is used in Mark 1.13, where Jesus is getting tested in the wilderness by Satan. Um, and in the wilderness, when Satan is tempting him, testing him, uh, one of the ways that Satan tries to test him is for him to exercise his power, which is similar to what we're seeing here. And yet Jesus is quick to reject their request. It says, sighing deep in his spirit, he said, why does this generation demand a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. Now, let's stop here. Uh, this is the first question Jesus brings up. In this section, and it seems to be a rhetorical question because Jesus doesn't even give them a, a chance to respond, right? He responds for them. Now, when I study the Bible, I always, you know, I, of course I look for like historical context and stuff, but I also try to like envision myself in the story, right? And, and uh, this is, so I, I can imagine uh, Jesus' frustration in this story. It, it, I would think like, how would I react in this situation? And I like Jesus' response because it says, Sighing deeply in his spirit, 
right? Like, y'all ever been there before? You ever had those conversations with some people that you have to have over and over again that you just start out just sighing deeply in his spirit? So, I, you know, I, I could relate a little. I could imagine Jesus is just fed up with all the conversations he's had with the Pharisees up until this point. And, and now, before we write off the Pharisees, though, how many of us have been on the other end of that conversation where we're the ones somebody's frustrated with? Am I the only one? No? Like, is it me? Am I the drama? You know? I know I've been there before. But to really understand why Jesus gave this response in the first place, we do have to look at the context. And by this point, Jesus, like I said, had already been gracious in responding to the Pharisees. You know, he's, he's responded to them up until this point. And he's already performed numerous miracles. So we can assume that Jesus knows they aren't genuinely asking him for a sign. But they're trying to test him, to, to tempt him into acting outside of his character and outside of his purpose and mission. I don't think Jesus, uh, or I don't think asking Jesus for a sign is necessarily a bad thing. Uh, be, uh, but I do think it's all about the intention and heart behind it because I think we've all asked God for some sort of sign before. Anybody ever done the, uh, you know, you, you're going through some things and you open up your Bible, Jesus, you better give me a verse that I need right now. And you just open it up, random page, and then point to the Bible, and you're like, this better be something, right? Anybody ever done that? I'm the only one? Okay. <laughs> I know you guys have done that before. Sometimes it works. Sometimes you go, whoa, this is crazy. And then sometimes it doesn't. You get some random genealogy, and you're like, damn, that, that, that I hope. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, but I, so I don't believe that that's the issue, that they ask for a sign. But you see, the Pharisees were leaders um, and teachers of the Jewish faith, and uh, they would have been anticipating a Messiah. But in their minds, Jesus didn't fit this picture of the Messiah they were expecting. In their minds, the Messiah they wanted was one that would lead a revolt uh, and use his power and might to overtake Rome and allow Israel to become its own independent nation again. That's what they're asking Jesus, like, Show us something like that. And Jesus was not about that. It wasn't in his plan. Jesus had a bigger purpose than that. Jesus' problem with the Pharisees was that they were too focused on their own future and wanted to force Jesus into a box that fit their own ideals and expectations. And so they tested him, attempted him to try to act out on that. Now, again, it's easy as you know, we know the full story, so it's easy for us to look at this story and, and look down on the Pharisees and their intentions in the stories. But I feel we can learn from them. Because I think some of us do the same thing. Trying to fit Jesus into a box that affirms our own ideologies and beliefs and expectations. And I could prove it. Just go on social media for, for a few minutes, Right? Uh, when you go on social media, you'll, you'll quickly see a bunch of different versions of Jesus that aren't necessarily the Jesus of the Bible. Um, here's one example um, of, of a Jesus people portray that's not in the Bible. Uh, American Jesus. 
often accompanied by a profile pic of an American flag and a verse taken out of context. And, and now I love America, I love the USA, uh, but, and this might be controversial, Jesus was not American. <laughs> I'm sorry, I haven't found it in the Bible. Jesus was not American. Yet so many of us try to fit Jesus into the context of national government, uh, trying to fit him into their own personal agendas. And Jesus' whole message, just like to the Pharisees in this story, was not to overtake any national government. That's what the, the Pharisees wanted him to do. It wasn't to overtake Rome and to restore Israel to its former temporary uh, uh, kingdom. No. It was bigger than that. It was much bigger than that. And this is why Jesus gave this response to the Pharisees. You see, we can be so focused on trying to fit God into our own ideals and expectations that we miss him completely. And it's easy to forget who Jesus truly is when we, when we try to do that. Now, as we move on to the next story, Mark 8, 14 through 21, we see that this conversation with Jesus and the Pharisees carries over into uh, his conversation with his disciples. In fact, he starts off the conversation by telling them, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod, because he just was with them. There's a pretty clear command from Jesus that insinuates a sense of urgency. Most, most people aren't bakers, so we're probably like, what is leaven? Uh, leaven was used as this rising agent uh, in bread, and uh, what, what they would do is they would take this, the old piece of dough, they would kind of like ferment it, keep it over uh, until the next week, and they would put it in, into the bread, and it would help it rise. But it was also very risky because if it was bad, if it got bad, it, it would spoil the whole batch, the new batch of bread, and people could get sick. And so what happened is that in Jewish culture, in the OT, leaven was also often associated with sin and corruption, uh, so they, they would use this lingo all the time talking about leaven. So uh, in modern day terms, Jesus is basically telling the, the disciples, don't sip the Kool-Aid that the Pharisees and Herod are drinking. Uh, and next we see that the disciples uh, start talking about bread because it says that they forgot um, bread and they only had one piece of bread with them. And they start making a big deal out of it, so much so that Jesus sees this. And, and so he asks a few back-to-back -back questions to the disciples. And these questions seem to be in the same kind of tone as his question in response to the Pharisees. In fact, it seems as if Jesus is fed up with them too, because he asks, why are you discussing the fact you have no bread? Don't you understand or comprehend? Do you have hardened hearts? Do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? And do you not remember? That sounds like a lot like my parents when I did something bad, right? Just them back-to-back -back questions. You're just like, whoa, you know, give me a chance. You don't even give me a chance to respond. You know, um, but there seems to be this sense of urgency here in almost pleading from Jesus and him wanting them to truly understand. He asked them how many, you know, how many uh, leftover baskets of leftovers did we have when I fed the 5,000? And then the 4,000, like 12, 7, 
And then he almost repeats the same question again from verse 17. Don't you understand yet? Adding that word yet seems to give some sort of hope that he knows they will eventually understand. But at that moment, they don't. Again, you know, we know the full story, like I said. So it's easy for us to look at this story and think, what a bunch of dummies. Like, you got Jesus right there with you. He just fed 4,000 at the beginning of chapter 8. You just left there. You have Jesus with you. How do you not see this? But again, how many times do we do this? Focused on our physical, material needs. Even though we know the full story of Jesus and all he's done. So I don't, I don't blame the disciples. And if they can be easily distracted by their here and now material, material needs, how much more can we be distracted? Right. We didn't even physically see Jesus do these things. Right. One thing that I've learned in life is that it is hard to see anything when we're in the middle of crisis. And don't know how our immediate needs are going to be met. You guys ever been there? When grief hits, when when we lose people we love, right? It can be easy to forget all the examples of love that we learned about from Jesus and how he's a comforter in the middle of it. It's like this tragedy. I think of the tragedy at MSU. A a few weeks ago, I I know numerous people, believers, some of the strongest Christians I know, needing words of encouragement and reminders that Jesus is a comforter and that he was present with them in their trauma. Because it's hard to see anything when we're in the middle of it. It's easy from the outside to say something, but when you're in it, it's different. When we get bad news from the doctors, it can be easy to forget all the people Jesus healed in the Bible. And forget that it could be done to us too. Because it's hard to see when we're in the middle of it. Or when we're flat broke and we ain't got no money, we don't know where our next meal is going to come from. It's hard to see past that. No matter how much stories of Jesus you learn. You see, I believe that Jesus wasn't frustrated with the disciples because they had forgotten the bread. He wasn't mad about that. Instead, I believe he just urgently wanted them to not be so preoccupied with their temporal concerns that they forget his teachings and forget that he was and is sufficient to supply every one of their needs. Because he understood himself that we can be so focused on our own temporary condition, worries, and needs that it is easy to forget who Jesus truly is in the middle of it. Now, the next story is the story of the blind man and uh, who was brought, you know, some friends bring him, beg him, Jesus, to heal him. He takes the blind man out of the village, spits on his eyes, and lays his hands on him. Now, this story is interesting because this is the only time in scripture where Jesus asked someone if the miracle actually worked or not. Jesus actually asked him, like, did it work? (laughs) He says, do you see anything? 
And apparently the healing worked, but just, just not fully. Because the man says, you know, I, yeah, I mean, it's, I see some, some people, but they look like trees walking. And then Jesus touches his eyes, and then his eyesight is fully restored. And there, again, there's so much that we could teach from this. You know, I was thinking of all the stuff I could t- talk about in this story. You know, why it took Jesus two times to heal this man. Why, why Jesus asked him if he's healed or not. Some theologians argue that the sight of the blind man uh, being unclear at first could be symbolic to other disciples' you know, faith. Like, they didn't know who Jesus really was, and eventually they will, and it's a process. Some argue that it could be the faith of, of the man that, that hindered Jesus from healing him the first time, just like Jesus was in the village and he couldn't heal anybody in his hometown because of their lack of faith. Maybe that's why, you know, but we don't know. They, you know, we, there's different arguments on both sides. But what I know for sure is that Jesus knew that the man's sight was completely restored the second time he touched him because he doesn't ask him again. He just sent him home and said, you know, don't tell nobody. So this makes me wonder, you know, like I said, when I, when I read the Bible, like think about being there, it makes me wonder why Jesus asked the man the question in the first place. Do you see anything? If he already knows, he touched him the second time, and he knew that he was healed. So I imagine he would know the first time. And I don't think it was a lack of power on Jesus' part. I, I believe Jesus could have healed him uh, immediately because he's done it before. He's he done it with just not even being there. <laughs> but I've learned that in everything that Jesus does and says, as we've seen, he has a purpose behind it. He says, do you see anything? Many theologians argue on whether or not the blind man was born blind. Was he born this way? Was it a condition that happened later on in life? And I think it's purposeful that the author left that information out because he's saying this isn't what's important. What is important is that the man was healed by Jesus. Now, as I, um, as I study psychology in school, um, I'm learning that trauma is traumatic no matter if you had it at a young age or just recently. Trauma affects you severely either way. And just like this blind man, whether he was blind from birth or blind later on in life, he's still affected by blindness. So it didn't matter how long it was, I think in some ways here, we can guess that maybe Jesus is somehow testing the blind man's faith by asking him, do you see anything? Because when the story starts, we see that it's not the blind man that comes to Jesus. It's his friends that come to Jesus and beg Jesus to heal him. I think sometimes in our life, our past can be blinding. So much so that it can cause us to lose faith and to doubt Jesus. In the story, maybe the the blind man didn't know who Jesus was or believed that he could heal him because of how long he was blind. We don't know. Maybe Jesus wanted to uh, uh, show some things are a process, and maybe that's why it took two times to heal him. We don't know. 
But we can be confident in knowing that there is nothing impossible for Jesus because he does heal him. It doesn't matter how long this man was blind, whether he, it was blind, he was blind from birth or later on in life because Jesus healed him anyways. And I wouldn't blame this man for, for having some doubts in Jesus because I think it's, it can be easy, us, easy for us to look at our past and see it as something that is seemingly impossible to be healed from. Some of us may have done some terrible things in our past. And some things that we feel like, Jesus can never forgive me for that. Some of us may have gone through some terrible, heavy trauma in our lives and that we're still trying to heal from. And it may feel that no matter how much we try and get help, full restoration just seems like it's so far away. And in these things and in these moments when we're blinded by our past, it can be easy to forget who Jesus is and what he can do. Now, the passage, uh, uh, this passage of scriptures ends with Jesus asking the disciples, who do people say I am? They respond with different answers. You know, John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets. Then he says, but you, who do you say that I am? Now, I find it significant that Jesus starts off with the question, who do people say I am? Now, growing up in church, uh, um, I'm a PK. That's what they call us, a pastor's kid, if you don't know. Uh, it was a rough life growing up as a, as a PK. <laughs> if you grew up in the church or if you know somebody who grew up in the church, uh, most people tell you that PKs are probably the worst, right? You guys ever heard that? Yeah, because they're usually, like, the baddest. They're usually, when they're older, they get in a lot of trouble. Uh, it's what people tell me, at least, you know. Uh, I can't argue because I've seen it, too. Um, but I think this is because of two, two things. One, because the pressure that is put on PKs from an early age, uh, this, um, to live this perfect life in reflection of their parents, Right? Um, you know, as, as I think growing up, like trying to not embarrass my dad. And, and two, and I find this to be the most true, is that because of all this heavy expectation in, in uh, growing up in it, I found that a lot of times PKs never get a chance to fully become a Christian themselves. It, they just hang out to their parents' faith. And because of that, it... it uh, because they just inherit faith from their parents, it's easy for them to just walk away from the faith altogether. And, of course, you know, I'm one of the survivors. Obviously, I'm here, right? Uh, <laughs> but I can remember from an early age, like, making that decision for myself. Like, no, I want to do this myself. I want to see what this is all about myself. And, you know, I, didn't, I don't want to serve the God of my dad and the God of my mom and grandparents. I wanted to see, like, who is this God for myself? And I think Jesus starts with this question because it's easy. He knows it's easy for people to just hop on a faith bandwagon. Yeah. And it might work for a while. Yeah. Going to church because your friends go to church. Going to church because your parents force you to go to church. But ultimately, that's not sustainable. Because when, you, when you're faced with any sort of opposition or, or uh, resistance from anyone, it's easy to just disassociate from it or reject it. 
or switch to the next feel-good movement when it comes along. And Jesus probably wanted his disciples to evaluate their own lives with this question. Who do people say I am? Are you in the faith because of other people based on their perception of who I am? Are you serving me because of them or because you truly want to know me? And that's why I believe that Jesus switches and takes this turn and asks, but you, who do you say I am? With the heavy emphasis on the you, who do you say I am? And we see that Peter answers this question. He says, you are the Messiah. And he's right because Jesus says, don't tell anybody yet. But as we see uh, later on after this, even though Peter knew the answer to this question, he still fails over and over again. In fact, the very next passage that they might talk about next week, I don't know. Jesus tells Peter, he calls him Satan. He says, get thee behind me, Satan. Because he forgets that quickly who Jesus was. We see Peter later on getting caught trying to put Jesus into a box and getting the Gentiles to uh, uh, try and get circumcised after Jesus ascends into heaven. We see, him, we see Peter getting caught in the present situations and struggles, even cutting off a man's ear because he for, quickly forgets the purpose of Jesus' mission. And we see him getting so consumed by his past mistakes and his guilt that he, after he denies Jesus three times that he goes back to fishing, which is where Jesus found him in the first place, until he comes back and, and, and lets him know, like, hey, you're forgiven, you're redeemed. I think we all have to answer this question that Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say I am? And just like Peter, we can forget who Jesus is sometimes. Trying to force him into that box, you know, to affirm our own beliefs. We can get lost in all of the daily struggles and problems that it can cause us to forget who he is. And, and we can be so consumed by our past mistakes and guilt and situations that in the midst of it all, we can be blinded to Jesus. And, and here's the truth. You're going to fail. Every day. This walk with Jesus is not an easy one. If someone told you it is, it's, it's not. They're lying. Jesus gives us examples like take up your cross daily. Which is, you know, we, we look at it like, oh, that's cute. Like, Jesus died on the cross. That's not a feel-good thing, Jesus was telling them. He tells his disciples, you will be persecuted just for knowing me, just for following me. I know you're probably thinking like, hey, this doesn't sound super encouraging. This is how you're going to end? <laughs> <laughs> and it's not that encouraging, but, but here's what is. And here's an even greater truth is that Jesus knows all of this. He knew all of this, and that Jesus is the Messiah. Peter was right. Jesus is the Messiah. Messiah literally means 
Savior. And for us to have a Savior, we have to be aware that we're the ones that need saving. And there's a sense of helplessness in that. Like, dang. There's, there has to be an understanding that we don't have it all together. <laughs> and it's why we need a Savior. It's not predicated on our works or how often we get it right. We're lucky. He's the Messiah. He lived the perfect life because he knew we couldn't. He dwelled among us so he understands how fickle life is and how easy it is for us to lose sight of him in those heavy moments and situations that we mentioned. But he is everything we need and more. He is more than sufficient to supply our every need. And more than that, he is right and just to forgive us when we do mess up. There's no past mistakes no, no trauma, no present needs or crisis. There's no future situations that is bigger than him in, in the grace that he gives us. We can be encouraged in knowing that Jesus is the Messiah. And that's good news. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus just for being you. Thank you for loving us in the midst of our constant blindness and, 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 and distractions in life that get in the way. I thank you that uh, your plan worked. I thank you for the life that you gave and, and for the grace that you give us daily. I ask that as we walk through this life that we uh, that you help to remind us of all the things that you have done. And when we do mess up and we do make mistakes, that we remember that you are bigger than all of those mistakes and all of those mess-ups. And that you have grace for us in those moments. Thank you for being you Thank you that you're the Messiah. In Jesus' name, amen.